All right. Well, welcome to another episode of Opening the Box of Knowledge. Uh, this week, we don't have Kachung with us because he's out uh, with his band, Bumyo, uh somewhere on the East Coast of the United States. I never know where. We're going to probably do a Where in the World is Kachung segment and find out. But uh, I'm really excited for our guest this week because, well, I don't know if I've ever told her, uh, but her and her husband, Joe, are one of the reasons I decided to do a podcast because I love our nerd out conversations. And I was like, we should share this. And every time we're together, I kind of feel bad for Vera because Joe and I take over and just talk nerd everything for a while. But this week we have uh, Vera Starbird with us and Vera is... Um, just like a personal hero of mine, she is pushing and breaking glass ceilings left and right. So welcome, Vera. Thanks for joining us. And hello. So I know Vera is not one. She doesn't like compliments or she gets embarrassed. But <clears throat> really, you've, um, gosh, you've been on a roll. I mean, I think, what was it, five, six years ago, you're doing plays at Perseverance Theater. You've gotten like these fellowships and I'll let you tell you more about all that. But I, I, that's how I really got to know who you were was your plays and they really were impactful. You've been involved with First Alaskans magazine. You've been doing these things. Um, Molly of Denali kind of blew up and is really special, I think, for all Alaska natives. Uh, so, gosh, where did you get started? What made you want to... <laughs> you know, tell stories for a living? Oh, gosh, from birth, probably. But for sure, uh, as a kindergartner, um, even before that, I would uh, ask my parents who would tell us stories. You'd either read us books or tell us stories at night before bed. But my favorite ones, I'd ask them to tell me a story with your mouth. I wanted them to make up stories. <laughs> like that's right. how I'd say it. It's like one with your mouth, not a book, not something, you know, you've memorized. And those are the ones that were either clinket stories or just stories my my dad meant make up. And so by kindergarten, um, I was already telling them I'm gonna be a writer. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna create these things. So um by first grade I had my first award, best storyteller in Miss Stitchick's first grade class. So Dang, shout We're, out. Yeah. <laughs> everything, everything from there was downhill. <laughs> um, yeah, I never, it's, in some ways it's almost boring because it's like, I never, I never wanted to do anything else. Like, it, I definitely knew by middle school, high school that a career out of it is difficult because you don't just apply for the job creative writing, you know, like, um, you have to sell those things, you have to work your way into it. So it was more about what am I going to do in the meantime, while I'm sort of developing a career in creative writing. So when I run into people from high school, and I tell them what I'm doing, they're like, yeah, that's, (laughs) that's what we thought you'd be doing. Yeah, it's, it's very um, not surprising, I think, to anyone. I think that's pretty amazing, though, because, you know, I had that kind of childhood too. Um, I grew up in a very remote village, Kasan. Um, reading was really important to me and writing and creative writing. 
I used to make up my own comic books and I was that kid in school too, got all the creative writing stuff and I would tell stories and I think that's what everybody thought I was going to do. And then it just kind of stopped after high school. But that's always kind of been my secret like wish. Well, too, I've always wanted to be a school teacher and then I always wanted to be a, a paid writer, like, you know, write a novel and be the next John Grisham or whatever, but <clears throat> probably around Star Wars and not legal drama. Um, and just always want to tell stories. So the fact that here you are, <clears throat> uh, a Clinket indigenous woman who had that kind of same thing, but you find a way to make a career out of it, to get paid to do it. I, you're kind of my idol. I mean, that's just badass and <laughs> proud of you too, because, you know, I'll let you go wherever you want with this, but you found a way to kind of work out everything through writing and storytelling, things that resonated with me and others. And then you've kind of been across the spectrum doing your very personal plays, that writing, but then also doing First Alaskans magazine and telling stories of indigenous people all across the state. And then Molly of Denali. And that one really fascinates me because I don't know how the hell that happened. Like here you get this PBS cartoon and like all this indigenous creators on it from behind the voice. You know, I'm so proud as uh, Clinkett and Haida that so many of the folks involved are Clinkett's and Haida's. Yeah. And I think you had a lot to do with that, <laughs> I'm guessing. Well, it was interesting. So I was the first. Um, so Princess Johnson was a creative producer, but she was also going to write an episode. But I was the only one only actual writer hired initially that was Alaska Native, but they always had a plan to bring in, sort of train up more Alaska Native people to write animated, you know, preschool programs. And that just didn't exist. Like there was, there were no, you know, bench of <laughs> Alaska Native um, TV writers, much less animated preschool TV writers. So that was always a plan that they are going to have this fellowship and train them up. And I remember Princess talking to me when they were going through all the people um, that were going to be in this fellowship, which ended up being, um, you know, Frank Tass and uh, um, Joe Yates and um, uh, June Thiel. And she was like, Vera we might, we might have too many Southeast writers, <laughs> but these are the ones we want. And it was like, well, you know, like, what can I tell you? We're amazing. <laughs> it was just meant to be. Um, and it wasn't, it was just, I think we take for granted or maybe don't notice because we're surrounded it. And I'm talking about Clinkett, Haida, Simpson people. We are absolutely surrounded in a culture that respects and honors art and it really validates the artist. Um, that doesn't mean always paying the artist, right. you know? but definitely the culture itself really encourages and uh, highlights art and speaks through art and identifies through art. And it was really not until I started playwriting and sort of getting into this very, very upper middle class to upper class white artistic world, like the audience of mainstream theater is very 
upper to, to uh, upper middle to upper class older white people. Like that's the ab- backbone of the audience. And so who's creating that, who's creating art for that, um, is, is also a very specific kind of people. Um, if you're in theater, you're not <laughs> upper class. Like you, theater doesn't pay you very much, but, um, but that's the audience you're always sort of playing to. And it wasn't until then when I was really in that world going, oh gosh, the U.S. dominant culture does not respect the artist, does not validate the artist. Like it's, it's very much a joke, <laughs> you know, like if you become an artist, um, it's not a real job. Right. Where in our culture, artists are more revered. Yes, very, I very much so. And I, I like I'm so glad st- I had that, you know. <laughs> like you've got status up. if you're an artist. Yeah. And you're, I mean, there's so many. Uh, protocol even around what making sure you pay them correctly and honor them correctly and uh, identify who did that art correctly versus yeah this sort of dominant culture that we're in that um, even though we intake so much art that we don't even consider art if you think of if you if you're watching television (laughs) if you're watching even YouTube like you're ingesting art but we don't even consider that art anymore Um, and so much work goes into that, but we don't respect people who work in that industry as a nation. And that was new. And I'm so glad that I had this sort of foundation of honestly, like respecting artists as uh, a, a valid part of not just you have something to say artistically, but you have an important part to do with the economy, with politics, with um, sort of the identity of your community that I don't think a lot of artists have simply because they're told over and over again they don't have uh, and shouldn't have an opinion on politics or a say, you know, in politics. They don't have a say in how the economy is running, much less are an important part of that economy. So that's something I, I kind of when I'm in um, non-native spaces, sort of try and encourage other artists to, to be. Well, just as a fan, as a consumer of what you put out there, I really quickly took notice of some of that, how intentional you are. Like, And we hadn't had conversations at first. We didn't really know each other. But these were observations I made, and I was like blown away how you brought our culture into your storytelling not just telling native story, clinket story from a clinket perspective, but how in the background the art was so prominent. It was part of the story. You know, um, Devilfish really comes to mind, like how powerful that was. And everything in the theater at Perseverance Theater reflected that in the promotion, you know, everything. And then You know, now just recently seeing the most recent play that Frank Katas did, um, even the sound, everything, you know, I think I I may be being really presumptuous, but it feels like that's a real influence of yours where you've kind of broken down that wall or barrier and now others are kind of following suit and doing that. And I I don't want to minimize um, Frank or anything he's done, I'm sure he's brilliant in his own right. But I think you guys are strong collaborators. I, I don't want to assume you're a mentor, but it, I would guess. Um, and I see that. And again, and now getting to know you personally and how much it means to you and how 
like, look, you, you're on a rising stock and you're on Alaskan Daily, you've done animation, you've done all these other things. You could be just, hey, look at me or whatever. Um, hey, I'm rising. <clears throat> you're really pulling po folks along with you. That's powerful. I, I get really emotionally charged by that thought, like watching the Emmys. You know, my mom was here at my house and we downloaded the Emmy app so we could watch that. And we got like when we saw Sovereign Bill come out and speak in the languages. And make us all cry. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. No, for <laughs> real. Um, looking at even the writers who went and were wearing their regalia joe yates wore his button robe like i'm like fuck yeah that was so cool and i i get goosebumps even thinking about that um god i don't even know what to say to you thank you i i love it uh you know and i don't mean to embarrass you well i mean i think it comes from the culture again i mean it 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 almost gets redundant because that's if you look at, oh gosh, like <laughs> uh, sort of quote unquote Hollywood or just the industry or whatever it is, it is pretty cutthroat. It's very competitive, very, very competitive. Um, and you don't necessarily, um, you're not necessarily encouraged to sort of <laughs> like help each other. Um, and some people do. Like I had an excellent, excellent um executive co-producer on Alaska Daily who immediately started helping and not in a condescending way, you know, where it's like, okay, this is your, your staff writer. I'm going to co-exec. Like, um, she really went, this is what I had to go through. She's, um, a writer of color also in the, in the business. And if we don't help each other, <laughs> you know, like we're going to sort of drown individually if we don't help each other come up. And I think something that has been, unusual about our sort of group of writers from the beginning is that we do all work together constantly. We do um, work not only professionally together, but I would say the majority of Alaska Native writers and TV have had at our house or been to their house. Um, it's something that when we were in a meeting once with some other writers that weren't Alaska Native, it was, we kind of left there and go, wait, did that, did that feel really competitive? Like it, it felt very competitive in a way that we weren't used to. And I think if you look at, even though so many of them aren't necessarily just Klinka, just Haida, whatever, it's from sort of spans the, the width and breadth of Alaska. We have learned from our elders. We've learned from the Anxa generation. We've, we've learned from our elders that have passed on, our ancestors from before, that you have to work together. If you don't work together in a traditional Alaska Native culture, you're not going to make it long. <laughs> you're not going to make it through the winter long. You absolutely have to rely. There's a dependence on each other that isn't just sort of relegated to the past. It's not just relegated to sort of ancient history. It's something that we do naturally <laughs> that we we're raised to do that i've i've literally had people tell me from the sort of quote unquote industry to be more cutthroat to be more um not nice <laughs> like, sure. to sort of um 
think for yourself and yourself alone. And you just couldn't, well, one, you know, my grandma would kill me, you know, <laughs> like, but also like, it's just, there's a part of you that just rejects that so hard in a wonderful way, because you realize just how strong we've been trained up in that really. And you recognize that for, I would expect that of any of these sort of Alaska Native colleagues and collaborators, because we're just not going to do that. Like right. there's, there's, you know, so few of us and we're going to be so much stronger if we can do this together. And so that's how we operate. One of my core beliefs has always been like, I've always been in a leader, you know, leadership role. I was 19 when I was mayor. I was, you know, all these things. Um, I didn't seek the spotlight, though, as weird as that sounds. I didn't. It just kind of got thrust upon me. I've always believed, like, you know what? If I'm in collective group, our people, and you and you're got the spotlight on you and maybe Joe has a spotlight on him, I feel like we all just shine brighter. Like, I don't feel threatened by somebody else's success. I actually feel more successful because of you. And that might sound crazy. And uh, it's funny, you mentioned your grandma, I think uh, Marlene Johnson, <laughs> who is like a legend in Clinkett country, who I really hold on a pedestal because she's another one who is breaking glass ceilings generations ago and like doesn't really get noticed for it as much as you'd think. Um, I know I gave her an award through Clinkett Hyder right away because She's, you know, forgive the language, she's kind of fierce and just no bullshit. And I love that about her. And she can come across gruff, but she's so kind hearted. Like she really wants to lift people up. And I think about, you know, she was a leader in a time where it was a very misogynistic, very paternalistic. And as a woman, I can't even imagine the things she probably endured or seen, heard, felt. You know, so I, I think she has to be, and I know she's incredibly proud, but, you know, just to see her granddaughter do that and lift others. Yeah, she'd be pretty upset if you weren't, I think. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that's how I was raised by her. But I think all of us are raised to some degree of you don't just... There, there's even sort of an industry. Well, yeah, you're like the nepotism, right? Like there's a big conversation about nep nepotism in Hollywood right now. And it's not even just about we're going to bring your family up. It's uh, everyone in the village, everyone in the clan, everyone in the community. Um, this is something that I always remember my dad, my uh, grandma's oldest son, um, teaching me. And it was so simple. I, I felt so bad, but I needed to borrow. I think I was like 18 or 19 and I needed to borrow $20 for gas. And I was just like, such a burden, you know, <laughs> and he was so, I was literally out of gas at a gas station. Like I, I literally can't go make my car move any further. And he ran over and he filled my tank and he was so happy to do it, like filled up the whole, it doesn't just give me $20, you know, he filled up the tank and then I think he gave me like $40 or something. And, and I was just felt so bad that I was being such a hassle. And he's like, Farah, when you're doing good, the whole family's doing good. <laughs> if you're not doing good, we're not doing good. And it was such a, um, realization that that's absolutely how they raised us. And I think how our cultures have raised us is if there's someone suffering in our community, we're all not doing good. And yeah, I, I've 
I've felt that about people that achieve things in our community. I'm so like, we did so good. I might not even have met them (laughs) before, but you're just so proud that they're representing. And then I felt that, um, for myself, when, when people are, it's both an honor (laughs) to sort of, um, represent achievement, but it's also a huge responsibility and like, oh my gosh, when you know that many people are looking and going, look what one of us is achieving, Boy, you better get that right. <laughs> you know? Well, here, here's my nerd quote. With great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> so saith Ben Parker. So Spider-Man reference. <clears throat> no, it, it's really true, though. You know, I think we rise together. And I think as you've been getting breaking through and getting the recognition and others as well, I see it in our community. People are so proud. You know, everybody wants to have watch parties and and this and that because, you know, it's really important to celebrate, you know, when we see our own people have success. And it's kind of multiplying. And you talk about that nepotism. You know, we had Bobby Wilson on the show who's involved with, you know, Reservation Dogs and Sterling Harjo and works in that group and it's like yeah we're gonna hold each other up and when one gets through like you know they're part of the 1491's comedy group that's where they all got their start they're all involved with these projects like they're coming around they got shows coming out on amazon and all these things and then uh, i don't know how well you know michiana elise but you know she used to work at the tribe and communications her mom's on the executive council and she just had a film she co-wrote you know at sundance and you know we see all this breakthrough and lifting each other up and i i think we need to celebrate those things and um but and also be strategic about it. Like this is something that I think sounds colder <laughs> like when you explain it, but it's not like my um, a director I worked with recently um, who's not native, but she is um, a woman of color. And one of her last things she said to me as we were sort of saying our farewells was work fast and bring your friends with you. Yeah. You know, like it's you, you need to, um, be fairly strategic sometimes when you're building capacity to do your own works. Like right now, we do just do not as native people. And this is like a broad, you know, reservation dogs, as amazing as it is, is one show amongst literally thousands and thousands out there. Um, it's great. It's getting a lot of attention. It's actually the show itself is opening doors. But we feel like there's this explosion of uh, native film and TV And in reality, it's we're finally, finally getting a few out there. But what we can do in those in which the majority of them, we don't have um, ultimate authority really over it. These are still shows that the 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 money and the top dollars are still going to non-native people. Um, We just do not have the capacity right now to create top to bottom (laughs) everything, our own, our say, the money goes to our communities, the stories about our communities start to finish. There's um, very little of that uh, and none of that going on at the, the, I hate saying the top level, (laughs) but the most noticeable, the most mass media level. But what we can do is build that capacity in what we're doing. So I have yet to work on a show um, that the top executives 
are native. But what I can do is make sure that there's a few more actors or writers or producers or stagehands or whatever that are native. So the next show I'm on, when they sort of do the inevitable, which is, well, there aren't native people that do that. I was like, Actually, there are, because in the last show, you know, yeah. they got that experience. So in this show, we're going to build more experience and more experience. And like what you can get by the end is a lot of experienced native people who can run everything from the very, very top levels to craft services, you know, like coming in. You, you know, a popular phrase in Indian country now, especially with Clinton Haida, is land back. But to me, that's taking back the spaces. It's not just the land. It's, you know, taking back spaces and filling those spaces and being in spaces and decolonizing them and making them our own and saying our people, you know, are can thrive in these spaces. I think you're going to see more and more. I, I'm a firm believer of that. I, I watch, you know, like what they're doing with Res Dogs and, and all that and what you guys are doing with Molly of Denali. You're building that skill set. You're making producers, you're making anime, you know. I, I look at Joe Yates, who this is just a young guy who believes he can make movies, and now he's making movies, you know, he's doing his thing unapologetically. And you guys are all just going to start filling these spaces. And, you know, Michiana, I'm so proud of her. She's going to do that, you know, um, without spilling too much tea. I know she's just got funded to do a documentary, and she's going to work on that, and it's it's so important. So it's breaking through, but I think what's happening is you're seeing high quality. Yes. You know, like Reservation Dogs is winning all these awards. Molly of Denali was up for these awards because they're recognized in the industry of being of the top quality. Mm-hmm. Prey, man, that movie was bonkers how good that was. Um, is her name Amber Midthunder? Yeah. Um, <laughs> she is phenomenal in that movie and then, and then for her, it to her be little part in reservation dogs too is amazing oh that's one of my favorite <laughs> episodes ever like and i can't remember the the guy's name who was like co-mc of that with her in the show it was so accurate you know because it's by us for us really yeah yeah that show is like <laughs> such a master class in how to make content for us And then when people get this very specific look at cultures, they actually love it. Like there's there's sort of this myth in the industry that people have to completely understand it to like it. And it's like, do you know how much science fiction is out there? Do you know how much fantasy is out there? Like, no, you don't have to completely understand everything about a world to love the story and love the culture that is being portrayed here. So that's such a, they finally did it, you know, like they really did it and went so specific in the culture. And here it says hit with non-native audiences, not just in spite of like, it's, it's, it's like, it's going to be in spite of the specific culture because of the very specific cultural references in there. Right. And they're on Hulu, which is one of the major streamers, you know, it's FX, it's, you know, one of the top shows they're going into season three. Like that's, you know, it's no longer an accident. There was, <laughs> I'd get a lot of these sort of um, comments that are meant to be compliments, <laughs> but sort of backhanded compliments that they weren't intending them to be. But with Molly of Denali, especially, I'd get them a lot. Um, but through my own plays or or magazine or other things, 
uh, people would say like, I was so surprised how sophisticated (laughs) these stories are. Or I was so surprised that these were so funny. And what they mean is they have had literally the entirety of film and television has been our cultures through the lens of people who don't understand our cultures. Everything they've gotten has not been from us. It's been about us from people who don't understand it. So they're finally getting this actually accurate look you know, at what we have to say. And they're so shocked that it's sophisticated or funny or brings them to tears or whatever, um, which is <laughs> sad. One, I mean, you just get kind of frustrated hearing it and going like, yeah, I know you didn't expect a lot of us. And I'm glad that you are feeling something, but I wish they weren't so surprised because yeah. we've been doing this for thousands of years, excellently. <laughs> we, we have an excellence in storytelling. And, and let me go back to just Clinkett culture because um, I can't speak for every culture, but I've certainly seen a lot of excellent storytelling from other cultures. Clinkett storytellers went what we now call production value, high production value. We put on theatrical experiences <laughs> for people for thousands of years with huge transformation masks with um, really sophisticated musical and storytelling kinds of things. And of course, we're going to be good at it now. You know, we've honed that for thousands of years. Of course, we're going to be good at it. now. I'm so glad you said that because I've been always saying like this stuff's in our DNA. And it's funny now because I don't need validation from anybody. But Western science is actually coming out now and saying like memories and experiences are actually in our DNA. And you're right. So we've been storytellers and artists and all of these things for thousands of years. You guys, you know, that saying now where where our ancestors' greatest dream come true. I think that's true. I think like literally you're the embodiment of a generations of storytellers, you know, and the artists. And it's such a powerful thing when you think about it. We're meant to be in these spaces. And if you look at like Native American, Alaska Native um, performers, look at Martin Sensmeyer, but you can go like Adam Beach. <clears throat> in the last 50 years, there's only been a handful of like real like Native American actors, actresses, West Studi, Graham Greene, you know, your sister-in-law, for example. But now those spaces are starting to be filled. And they were always excellent in theirs. Like they weren't low caliber. They were high caliber performers. Well, that's it. <laughs> when people get so surprised that we can tell these stories well, um, whether it's Molly Denali, whether it's a play, what you know, whatever it is, it's like, do you know how good we have to be to get to <laughs> like um, the same level as the 20 other non-native people who've made it this far? Like y- you get very used to being the only native in the room, the only whatever, the only, and not just for that day ever, you know, like we've, I don't know how many times it's like, we've never had a native whatever for the project, for the grant, for the um, show, for the industry. And I don't think people get just like how good you have to be to even get a shot at it, much yeah. less actually be in there. And that sounds weird to say it cause I'm in there, but I also, have been surprised <laughs> at um, the quality of, of other people who make it in. And it's like, do you know how many Native people I could name right now that could do this job? 
better. Like, you know, I mean, it's if oh, like that's sort of the dream is to have like a TV show or something that is all native written, Alaska native written so that we could really showcase like, OK, this is what you do start to finish how we can do it because they're good. I mean, like if you look at Frank Katas, if you look at June Thiel, you know, like these are Missiana, like they're so good <laughs> and they're not getting a 10th of the recognition as people that don't have the skill that they have in, you know, non-native people in the industry. I, I'm not in the industry, but I am a voracious consumer. You know, I'm, I'm into pop culture. I, I've been a nerd before it was cool to be a nerd. I love entertainment. And, you know, one of the things you talk about the quality. So <clears throat> Ed Littlefield, I think he's actually a genius. I mean, there was kind of a joke in our podcast about how geniuses. The guy's brilliant. What he does, how musically inclined he is and what he does, like that Frank's show and how he conveyed and portrayed feelings through sound and really sucked you in through that sound. I was blown away and I'm like, if the industry catches wind of this guy, so long, Ed, man, he's going for the stars. Yeah. You know, and that was, I, I was really just blown away about that. Yeah. And, and I think you guys are all of such high caliber in your area. It's not a surprise to me when you guys are breaking through and you're getting the success now because people are starting to recognize, oh, she's not just a good native writer. She's a great writer. You know, and they're going to say that about your performances and the voice acting. Every level, I, I think there's nothing low quality about Molly of Denali. Watch oh, yeah. any other, you know, preschool cartoon. If I wasn't native, I'd have to say it was brilliant. I mean, I'm enthralled with it because I see representation. But it's great storytelling. It's, you know, and it's educational and it's... One of the things that gets me excited about it is knowing that the majority of the audience is not native, mm -hmm. and but they're going to learn about culture and, <clears throat> you know, it's interior, it's Athabascan, but because of you and everybody else, like the journey to celebration, all these things that have been incorporated, I feel attached to that. And, you know, I say this all the time. I've said it a lot on the show. When I grew up, there was no representation. I didn't see in any kind of pop culture or media myself or my relatives or anything, except for a few bit parts where they're always marginalized and almost a joke, you know. Yeah. These, I mean, I'm just glad that they switched from Italian actors playing Native <laughs> Americans. But, you know, now we're seeing people, you know, and God bless them, I think Wes Studi's brilliant and that's why he got an academy award for his lifetime achievement but he shouldn't be alone in that field of native actors and actresses yeah so <laughs> speaking of my sister-in-law so my sister-in-law is irene bedard who um she's sort of known for two things most of all i think one of course is she's the voice of disney's pocahontas but she's also known for her role in smoke signals sort of like cult cult hit yes um I had to confess to her. So she's the one who I was actually friends with her first. And she kept telling me about this brother she had. And he's really great. You should meet him. And every once in a while, I'd, we'd I'd be talking about something. She's like, you really got to meet my brother. So 
she introduced me. And long story short, we're married now. (laughs) Um, So that's the best thing she's ever done. But the night before our wedding, I had to confess to her that when I was a Head Start teacher, I did not allow Pocahontas stuff in my classroom. (laughs) I wouldn't allow it. I was just so frustrated with representation there. And she... Absolutely, like, because she's a wonderful person. Understood, she's she's been getting it for 20, almost 30 years now with that movie. Um, She gets it. She got it at the time. It's not like in retrospect, we see that this was, you know, not always the greatest representation, like at the time even. Um, And it was through talking with her um, where I really realized just how bad it could have been had she not been there, had some of the other Native actors, Russell Means, if they hadn't both been there. And then for actors especially (laughs) um, at the time and still, boy, you got to take the jobs you can get. Yeah. Um, There was nothing and certainly nothing where there's a Native and a heroic point of view. Um, It's a role for a Native person who doesn't get saved. She does the saving. So it was really interesting. And this is like two, I I hope you have her on someday um, to talk about it. Um, It was really fascinating and not so much that it changed where I'm like, oh no, it's actually good representation. No, it's still pretty bad representation of, of, you know, one Pocahontas herself, but also just native culture. Um, But it did change my mind on what even imperfect representation can bring. And for native people who identified with, uh, dance with wolves, with Pocahontas, with whatever, to stop judging that because, man, we're just out here trying to scramble for the little bit of representation we do have, for the little bit of validation we do have in sort of this mass popular world that we're all inundated with. We get a little bit of it. Um, of course, you're going to identify with that. I didn't see myself represented in television until I was literally writing a show, you know, with it. I got so emotional when I saw the pilot for Molly. And two things happened um, that I, I believe actually is an unaired pilot. I don't think they ever aired it. But Molly's mom, Layla, is just beating. She's beating on some moose hide. And then later she goes to talk to Mr. Patuk, who's wearing a sealskin vest. And just those two things, they don't even have dialogue around those objects seeing those objects just treated as everyday things, <laughs> like yeah. regular things as they were through my entire life made me so emotional because one, you're seeing it, but two, you're realizing, oh, this has been such an absence my whole life. And now there's no native child that's ever going to lack that again. Like they're, you know, they're always going to have something that has represented them on screen. So I'll go back to Irene because one, Joe's in the room. So um, I'm going to say this. I think she was the first, like, I had a crush on her in Smoke Signals because one, she's beautiful, but two, she's native. And there was like a native, you know, star. So, yeah, there was that. So it was really awkward a number of years ago when I finally actually met her and I was like, I don't know if I tell her this. That when, <laughs> like, twenty-five years ago, I was like, "Oh my God, you're so great." But then we did that, um, like, Q and A thing at the tribal hall with you and her. Remember that? Mm-hmm. 
<clears throat> and to hear her stories like totally captivated me, like her whole experiences. And so she had given me, uh, I collect Funko Pops, the bobbleheads. Uh, <laughs> and I don't know that she knew I collected them, but she gave me an autographed Pocahontas one. And I'm the president of Clink and Haida, so I had it in my office. And I actually had a couple of people like, ooh, you know, you have a Pocahontas Funko Pop, you know, bobblehead? And I said, yeah, but it's autographed by Irene Bedard, and she gave that to me. And they're like, oh. And they're like, but, you know, kind of going into that whole how that representation and how horrible. And I was like... But that gave her the opportunity to do the next one and her stock's rising. And one day it's going to be our people because of these opportunities and they got that credibility in the industry. You're going to be in charge. And it's starting slowly to happen. Like Alaskan Daily, you know, you're in the writer's room, but you've had some exposure to being in charge a little bit that you were talking about that shocked you and scared you. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I will say with Alaska Day, like a, a good segue in, into that is that Irene is in Alaska Daily. She yeah. plays uh, the mother of a missing and murdered indigenous woman um, that, that kind of spurs Hillary Swank's character to come to Alaska. Um, this is the first time that Irene in her 30 plus years has actually played her own ethnicity her own heritage. She's never played a Nupak woman before. I think people think she's like Lakota at this point. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Because she's played other characters so much. So when you talk about like, oh, we're finally, we're honing in, we're honing in on some accuracy. She had to do 30 years in the industry before she could even play herself, you know? Um, But yeah, with Alaska Daily, the writer's room itself was a big education into... Uh, the power structure in the industry and um, boy, I learned a big lesson in how important titles are. I've never cared much about titles. I think they're kind of silly, but boy, do they matter in Hollywood. <laughs> like yeah. the, the actual specific title that you have. And if you look at the screen, I think most people like me, you just had no idea what the difference between an executive producer and a co-executive producer and assistant producer, you know, whatever. And now I know, and now I know um, that those matter. And again, sort of bringing back to the strategic part of it, like getting native people into those key positions, getting them experience, getting them um, good at it. Because now that I've seen this, I actually go like, I know so many native people who could be good at this. Why on earth aren't they doing this? This is what they should be doing. Yeah, it's a. Uh, so uh, you you've been breaking these glass ceilings like we talked about, but just a friend, just a, a fan. What was the Emmys like? What, <laughs> what was that? Because that was crazy. Um, that was a lot of fun. It was definitely pretty surreal. Um, it was surreal even just hearing it that Molly of Denali was up for two Emmys, and. To what what were those Emmys? What so categories? One was for the overall uh, children's preschool program. And there was a little bit of sort of, um, it's not really a preschool program. It's a school age program. It's like five to eight years old. But so some of us were like, preschool. <laughs> All offended. <laughs> yeah, we're like, ah. But they don't really have, it's, it's interesting. There's an awful lot of rules around even what you 
what you can submit for in the Emmys. And then the second one was for writing. So that's the one we like personally were actually up for. Um, and I know they had used the episode that I wrote about P Elizabeth Pradovich as part of the um, Emmy package going in. So that was extra exciting to know that. Um, but at the same time, you have this like excitement of hearing about it and like, oh my gosh, up for an Emmy. But also there were people, very specific people who weren't up for the Emmy because of the rules of who could even be submitted. So you sort of also immediately knew there were really specific people who should have been named on that, <laughs> who, who should have done that. Writers were, or? Um, one associate producer, Sydney Isaacs. She mm -hmm. absolutely, you know, has been with the show from the beginning and like so much work. She's now a writer. Um, yeah. She's our, in addition to her many other roles on the show, she's also writing to hundreds of people, of native people. There are hundreds and hundreds of people who work on the show regardless, like, yeah. but hundreds of native people who consulted, who acted, who did sort of weird things that educational things that most other shows don't even have. There's no word for them. Um, the uh, cultural advisory committee is not a thing that anyone has in the industry. Like an Alaska native group of advisors is not anything any other show has. Those, those people didn't get named um, right. and they've been there the entire time. So there was sort of this yay, aw, like kind yeah. of moment. But then the actual Emmys, it so is exciting. Who, who all was nominated for the, I mean, because I've seen a lot of you. I knew every single one of you that went, which was <laughs> weird too. I was like, boy. Um, it was, there were seven Alaska Native writers who were named on there. And I'm not going to name them because I'm going to leave like one person out and then I'm going to feel awful. I do know all of them. Okay. I've obviously worked with them, but I'm going to like leave one off and uh, not have it. So for the actual writing Emmy nomination, there are seven Alaska Native writers who um, are, will now forever be able to say they're Emmy nominated writers. You get a little certificate. <laughs> but, but see, that's just it. That lends its credibility, right? Like now that opens more doors. Like I know Joe very well. He actually worked for me one time, you know, in Kissan. Um, I've known him, his family, you know, everybody his whole life. And um, this is a guy who's really worked hard to get where he's at. Just to, you know, he's got a beautiful young family. He's just a hard worker. I'm a big fan of his. To see him get that opportunity and to be included in that, uh, I was cheering, you know, of course, like Hune is, you know, we used to be roommates or good friends, um, just to see. And yeah, you're right. You're going to start leaving names. And <laughs> like I went to high school with Rochelle, um, you know, seeing all everybody. It's really incredible to see that opportunity. And man, I wanted you guys to win so bad, but I really did feel good that you were nominated. Yeah. Like you're forever yeah. an Emmy nominated creator that's on your resume. Mm -hmm. And for you, I think I, I see a lot of more of that in your future. But for these ones, like they may have never gotten that opportunity had Molly of Denali never come along. Yeah, I think that and that goes into the strategic part of it, too. Like it's um, I used to work in public relations and there is sort of a strategy around award nominations and stuff. Um, and obviously you just have to get it. Like You you can't sort of plan to have an Emmy like you. You have to actually get the nomination. But 
um, part of the strategy and submitting for some of those in the world I used to be in was um, because unfortunately we need as not even just native, but creators of color, artists of color to sort of make it in this larger mass media kind of world, you have to have outside validation. They're never going to hand it to you. They're never going to give you the benefit of the doubt. So the fact that, um, as I was saying earlier, titles matter in this industry, titles really matter. And so that now when we go to another show that I may or may not be doing, um, to be able to go, okay, but here we have some writers initially, if they didn't have as much, as much experience as maybe the next one or there was some person that this producer liked and they wanted, well, now I can go, well, these are all Emmy nominated writers. Yeah. That makes such a difference. And like as cynical as that sounds, it is part of the strategy of um, the sort of world that we need to exist in to get these people the shot that they're not going to get otherwise. So I've known forever, like um, if they're asking me to do the show, it's probably because there's a native something involved in it. Right. I've now sort of expanded to there's, it's probably something Alaskan at least. So I sort of like pushed past that. Um, and now, you know, that there's been a couple shows um, and they're silly. Like it's like a Disney, you know, show about animated show about cats you know, or a Netflix show about monkeys who fix things. Um, but they weren't, like you are saying earlier, they weren't asking me because I was Native or Alaskan. They were just asking me because they'd worked with me before and they knew I could write. That's the dream, right? right? And every single one of these creators that we're talking about can do that, can absolutely do that. But first they have to go through this sort of battery of extra things that no other creators have to go through. So that brings up a thought, you know, when we interviewed Bobby Wilson, one of the questions we had talked about, and I think Chung had asked him, you know, is the hopes one day to have like a native channel, streaming channel? And Bobby was like, no, I don't want that. I don't want to be, I, I think he really didn't want to be kind of just that category. He wants to be anything and everything to play parts in movies that speak to everybody. He's always going to be Native American, but, you know, it's like, why be put in that box? And I think you start out in that box, but you want to break out, right? Mm -hmm. I will say the funny thing is when you do finally sort of get on these projects and then you're like, hmm, well, I kind of want to do native stuff. <laughs> you know? you're just like, okay, well, there there isn't always the sort of meaning, <laughs> like depth of, of uh, what you'd like to be doing once you're in them. So it was like, yay, I finally did it. Well, I want to just go do native stuff, you know? <laughs> well... I don't know. I, I envision you and some of these folks we're talking about just one day having a production company. I will say like some of it is the, the dream of um, just being able to choose what you want to do is such a luxury that none of us really have as, as native creators. Like you you do feel I think there's this internal pressure to to, to do the native thing because there's so few of us actually doing it. Um, and actually getting a literal audience that you feel the pressure <laughs> like to do that. But just to be able to get to a point where we can do the next Star Wars movie, we can do the next um, whatever fantasy fiction, we can do a crime show that doesn't 
have anything to do with native people if we want. Um, I suspect we'll always have native people on there because that's our perspective. That's a world perspective. But the, that luxury of just being able to choose whatever you want to do is talking to most other writers. And I will say like usually, um, non POC writers or creators, uh, that work in whether it's theater or movie and film, they don't, it doesn't even cross their mind, um, that they can work on whatever they, they they can just get staffed on a crime show or a horror show or a comedy show. And it doesn't even cross their minds the sort of all of this extra stuff that native people or people of color need to consider along with what they're choosing. So, you know, I, when we were first starting talking today, talked about just childhood and I got to tell you a story. So I just moved, bought a new house and I was going through stuff and I found a box of like my childhood stuff and writings. And I wrote a story that I think now is actually was way ahead of its time and also reflects me being a nerd and also really a smart ass. But it was about a group of Native Americans colonizing Mars and then finding out there are Martians and we were colonizers. <laughs> I want to tell that it. story someday. <laughs> the irony of being Native and becoming colonizers. <clears throat> but... No, I think that's what we need to tell all these stories. And I'm, you know, just get super excited about the idea of like a native production company where we can tell our stories. And, you know, um, Joe was on our earlier episodes talking about the theater and, and the industry. And I've been a real fan. Theater, I'm a village kid. I didn't grow up with the theater and to me, that seemed like a really upper-class white thing. So when you said that, that resonated with me. But my experience has been you guys in the theater. So I see you very deliberately and consciously kind of decolonizing that space. You know, um, because of my day job title, I think I've been invited to a few, you know, and, and it's been really neat to see like, hey, they do land acknowledgement before the show and they they really have decolonize that space and you know it's no coincidence that your husband's the chair of the or is chair of the perseverance board and i really we've had some interesting conversations that i hope really go somewhere about decolonizing that space and taking it further because i, I want to see us just fill as many spaces as humanly possible whether that's set design, you know, sound, producing, acting, all of it, pretty soon it's, there isn't a space our people don't fill. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in one of the reasons I end up liking theater is because there's more of an immediacy that can happen. Um, Cause you're right there, you're with them. You're with everyone who's creating this versus film or television. And it's a much slower, slower, bigger boat to try and turn. But, um, there's, there's been people, and I should say like, like when you talk about glass ceilings, like I'm only doing this because I'm standing on the shoulders of so many people who have been doing this and often don't get the credit for doing it because they're fighting for what was almost lost. Like really the generation before us, 
they were just trying to bring back what was taken from us. I mean, they were really trying to reestablish these traditions and artistic uh, protocol and all of these things that were taken and made illegal for so long. They were reestablishing that. And I think they don't often get the credit for the sort of like second renaissance we're, we're having now um, because we're all standing on their shoulders. We're, we all sort of learned at their feet of very traditional um, artistic mediums and now we're sort of expanding. And theater, I think, is the, the most natural for me when we talk about Clinkett uh, art as a medium that can bring all of those things we'd always done back together. Um, when I was doing uh, one of my plays and I was really wanting, and I'm just gonna, I'll, I'll put them on blast, like Lyle and Colleen James, and I really wanted uh, choreography uh, for Devilfish, and I wanted Clinket choreographers. And I kind of made the mistake of like, okay, I need, you know, th this is what we're looking for. We're looking for choreographers for this production and sort of using all of the sort of industry language that I really had only learned a few years before that. And they were like, whoa, like we haven't worked in this theater before. You know, like we're, we're really, that's not what we do. And finally, went, okay, let me rephrase this. Uh, we need people who can teach other people how to do clink a dance. And they're like, oh, that's what we do all the time. I was like, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's really, we have all of this. And I say we as sort of the, the bigger, wider industry world have all of these words and inside language and whatever for things we've been doing forever. They're, they were teaching Clinket dance. Ed came in and for as wonderful as sound design and everything was, he was using drums and raven calls and deer rattles and all of these really cool, very traditional things to create so much of the sound. Um, we had my parents, oh my gosh, make so many of the props, which were not fake clinket items. They were real clinket items. Right. Like, there was one time I looked on stage and I was like, oh my gosh, if I try to do the math of just how much money you know, <laughs> of, of, you know, clinket valuables are, are on stage right now. I'm not going to do well. So, um, but they were creating authentic clinket items, not sort of fake props or, uh, costume designs. You know, my, my mom made blankets for the play, real clinket blankets for the play. Um, really all of these things that we'd done for so long for theater, if we just call clinket, um, storytelling before theater. It's exactly what it was. There's no difference in it. You know, the only difference is now we have spotlights and offstage music. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, I was really impressed uh, uh, with Alaskan Daily. And you and I had talked really early on. Um, you had called and asked about MMIW and some questions. And then I had talked to Joe and he was talking about how you're getting like set pieces, like real jewelry and different things. And then I had, uh, I don't know if you reached out to me first or, or you had the props person reach out. I don't even remember because I, so many of you had talked to on that, but and then sending Bentwood boxes, you know, that I was kind of crazy. They're like, so we're going to get you the shipping deal with FedEx. You package them up, send them. We're going to pay for everything. And then, you know, we're going to pay you a, a nominal fee for having these boxes. And I was like, damn, that's pretty cool. But I was like, I don't think Avira was there 
there would be that level of commitment or authenticity at all. And uh, I don't know what you can talk about or what you can't, but I know that you did a scene with a canoe. I mean, that blew my mind away, like how you did it and what you done. Spoilers, spoilers. <laughs> Is it? Okay, well, I'll stop right there. <laughs> no, but I can talk about um, a little bit about the scene and, and just the experience, like the, the whole season that was about um, a missing and murdered indigenous woman sort of solving this uh it's solving the crime, but it's also figuring out why it's happening. Like the, the focus of the writer's room was not how can we get this into an interesting murder mystery, but it was how can we highlight the institutional problems here? Because there's actually a lot of debate, you know, in the room of whether we should even name a killer because that wasn't the point. Right. Um, I, I do think knowing... Oh my gosh, love the props people of Alaska Daily. Love the costumes people on Alaska Daily. Like the artists uh, involved in this show were just exceptional. And I never, ever, ever, and I won't spoil too much, but like the canoe specifically, I would never have been okay with that had I not then been working with them since last summer and seen what they are capable of and seeing their commitment to getting it right. So I think the commitment from them was already there. They already were wanting authentic stuff. I think the difference in having, there were three Native people in this production. <laughs> there were two in the writer's room and then um, a couple of months in on, on set in Vancouver. So we were writing in New York. <laughs> uh, they were on set in Vancouver for the show about Alaska. <laughs> um, a couple months in, um, Stephen Blanchett uh, came to be a Native consultant on set. So they had someone on set finally. Um, and there's two writers in the room. Was that Stephen? Huh? I thought it was Stephen's brother. Peter. Sorry, Peter. Peter. Oh my gosh. How many Blanchettes are there? There's so many, there's so many Blanchett well, bros. There's several and they're all very, um, talented and in the industry. Yeah. I think ways. cause you said Stephen, I, I said, well, no, no, no. Peter. Amazing. Um, so, so committed to getting it right. And oh my gosh, being, the one Alaska Native person amongst hundreds and hundreds of people who are working on set to get this show. So he's literally like the only Alaskan, yeah. <laughs> there, much less the only Alaska Native person. So Peter was like, we were constantly on the phone with each other. Um, but again, there's three of us for the entire production, which and is three more than they might have had, you know, otherwise. So what's an entire production? A hundred people? Couple oh, a couple people? hundred at least. And that's without. So three people out of a few hundred. Yes. And that's without the hundreds of people that they come in for everywhere from background actors to, you know, special guest stars. Like that's that's without the actors. Right. So what do you call Steve? Is he a special guest star, him and Bumyo? Yes, I believe they were special guest stars or, or they, oh gosh, I'm going to get it all wrong because they have, they all, again, with the titles, like <laughs> the, the different titles of, of what they are. Like I know Irene is considered a guest star, even though she's in like a whole bunch of the seasons. And then some of them are like... Um, I, I can say Aaron Tripp and Frank Katas are yeah. going to be in. Um, and I think they're, oh gosh, no, I'm going to get it wrong, but they're a different kind of actor than actors who might be in backgrounds with no lines. You know, it's it's all a, a big funny mess. But yeah, um, with us being there, though, while the commitment to getting it right was there, 
you, they just can't get it right. You just yeah. can't, if you don't have people that know that's not a thing or know that's missing or something is there that shouldn't be there to catch it, you just aren't going to be able to do it. For instance, one thing that bothers me, and this isn't a native thing, but it just, there was no one on set when they filmed this line that got changed a little buddy actor who they're all in Anchorage. And the actor says, yes, um, he gets asked if he wants to go to Seward and he says, oh yeah, I haven't been down there or up there in a while from Anchorage. He hasn't yeah. been up to Seward and, and, and it's such a small thing. But if you're from Alaska, you know, it's down, not up. Yeah. So, it, you know, you know that, but do, do because literally nobody was there, you just, they aren't going to know that they're saying it wrong unless someone's actually there to say it. That's not right. There was a show, I think it was like in the early 90s. I can't remember. Oh, God, what was it? Northern Exposure. Northern Exposure. <laughs> yeah. And I remember watching it and the, the, lady, the main lady in it is a bush pilot. And she's like, oh, I just went from Juneau and then I had to stop in Kotzebue and then Nome. <laughs> like in the afternoon. Yeah. As one does. <laughs> yeah, as one does. Like, you know, that's like I'm going to go from Seattle to Connecticut, but down to, you know, California in yeah. an afternoon. Yeah, there's, do you know, there's some interesting decisions, creative decisions that have to be done there to, for Alaska Daily, we were trying to go more authentic of like what can actually be done. There's a whole... <laughs> There's a whole drama about um, things that got changed in the script last minute um, or, or just what they could and couldn't do on set about going from Anchorage to Soldovia to Kodiak. And when they switched up the order, it was like, oh, no, that doesn't make sense anymore. So you're trying to scrambling for a different area they can reference. So there, there are sometimes where you're just trying to get authentic and there are sometimes where you have to go. Authentic authenticity doesn't matter as much as the story and the representation we get. So for Molly of Denali, for example, if you notice in the show, her mother, who has a bush plane, she can go anywhere in Alaska kind of that day. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, and that was a decision of if we can have her mother on this animated show be able to go anywhere in Alaska, we can highlight more cultures. Sure. We can tell more stories about different groups around Alaska. So it was like, okay, it's not as accurate, but this actually helps what we ultimately want more. So you get these, like, you wrestle with these sort of like, is this right? Is this not right? All I, the time. I, I've listened to some of the people be critical and I'm like, this is a show who's gotten it more right than any show in history. And you got to suspend your you know, belief a little bit just because it's it's the world of make believe. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're trying to represent real life events or portray, you know, these things like MMIW. But, you know, you're not going to hit it right for everybody. These are all personal experiences to way too many people to try to have one show represented accurately for everybody. Yeah. Just be glad it's being represented, that this is being brought to mainstream. You know, I sat there and I listened to an interview on TV, and I won't say who or what, about Alaska Daily, and I felt like, wow, they're really taking credit for all of this. And I'm like, ugh. But then I'm like, I'm just glad the story's being told. So I'm going to let that go and... I'm like, and of course, you're my friend. So I'm like, everything's because of Vera. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I will say, I mean, I think before the premiere, um, 
and I don't want to speak for it, but I could say like, um, so Andrew McLean was the other uh, writer in the room who did On the Ice of, yeah. of much acclaim. And we were both so just, oh my gosh, are we going to be able to like, are we going to get kicked out of Alaska? Are we going to be allowed back? You know, um, because we were very aware of what didn't make it in what we fought for and lost. Like, um, I think something (laughs) you don't love to talk about is just like how many of the battles you actually lost. Yeah. And I would say I lost many more battles than I won in the room. And that's just the nature of it. But if you and Andrew weren't there, none of those battles would have even been fought. Yeah, they wouldn't. I mean, they... Let alone a couple win. Well, I think that's when the premiere came out. And we saw the reaction. I should stop talking for it. I'll like, like, someday you should have it on too. But um, when I saw the reaction of uh, Native people, especially Alaskans, yes, definitely mattered to me um, in general, but Alaska Native people and just seeing what they responded to and how they were seeing what representation was there was accurate. Um, what stories we were able to tell, um, how proud they were to see their own cultures reflected, how thrilled they were to see artists that they know or wear or buy from um, be in the show, uh, their work be in the show. That's when it changed for me from just like focusing on what we didn't get in (laughs) to, okay, but we did get some stuff in and we did um, all those months long battles for that that one line or that one scene was worth it because they're seeing themselves in, in an area they never are able to see themselves in. Well, just as an Alaska Native man, not, not your friend, I just want to say thank you. You know, it's such a crazy time to live in where we are starting to see representation and that you guys got it so right despite the big battles it is. And let's face it, it all comes down to money and budgets and costs. The fact that you could get what you did, I thought was amazing. One of the things I noticed following it on social media, like Facebook, was how many kind of like, I'd say not elders, but older aunties and folks that were tuning in and so proud. And, you know, let's face it, MMIW, a lot of the stories you you tell in your career, they're not the easy subjects. They're not easy things to talk about, but they're... You can never change them if they're not talked about, right? Like we got to drag this stuff out of the darkness and into the light. And on a pretty epic scale, you've been a part of dragging this out into the light. And I know warriors like Abby Echohawk and others who this is their life. You know, I would like to think this has made their job easier, that they don't have to spend so much time just educating people before they can even talk about the real issue that it's been on like it's ABC. This is a Disney company. This is as big as it gets. And we're seeing the most honest reflection in in that representation ever. Vera, I am so full of gratitude for you and the work you do, because one, you get to live out your dream and get paid to do it. And you're, and I think, I would like to think this is going to just open more and more doors for you being an Emmy nominated writer, being a writer on this. I, I wish for you to just blow up and take over the world, but I'm along for the ride uh, just as Alaska native, thankful to see that representation. 
and I hope these kids grow up and seeing Molly of Denali and like, hey, where's our, um, you know, Debbie of Southeast? I don't know. I'm making <laughs> this up. But we, we want our representation down here, even though you guys predominantly clink and hide has staff on that. Um, you know, I want more. I don't want to settle now as a consumer. Well, and I think the good news is because you, you do get as a native artist, a very um, this is the one shot you get. You know, this is it. Um, I think as other shows have success, as you have success, as other artists have success, it's sort of proving <laughs> this works. This yeah. this stuff is good. People are liking it, not just, I always hate it when they do like, well, it's just, it's just the native audience, which is such a low audience, like, oh, shut up, you know, yeah. <laughs> like, we, we actually matter in the scheme of things. But um, when it's the non-native audiences that's responding to it, I think, um, they're responding to something that we already know is good. Like they're responding very differently to it, but in a positive way off of stuff that we already know is cool and interesting and sophisticated and heartwarming or whatever. When you see, um, I, I will say like the struggle as a native artist and really a, a lot of um, people who are from sort of what might be considered niche cultures. <laughs> Just so funny that we're the original Americans and yet we're sort of treated as this, as this odd niche thing. You end up talking about the basics so much. You're just sort of constantly at Native 101. <laughs> you know, you're like how many times I've had to explain to people that there are more than one language in Alaska Native cultures, you know, um, that you're sort of just constantly at the level of doing the basics and the desire for Native artists and Native people to create and see much more complex things you know, than just the basics. So reservation socks for Molly of Denali to be able to do that has been, oh, that feels like a luxury. And yet it should be the standard. Yeah. Like it, it absolutely should be the standard. We should, every single native artist should be able to create things at the level they're actually operating at versus sort of back here in the kindergarten, you know, like at the kindergarten level, or honestly, some of our native kids at kindergarten will know more you know, than the sort of general American public will know. So I think the, yeah, we, we I appreciate, I, I'm trying to say I appreciate your words because I, I think we get so used to the fight, the yeah. battle of trying to do more than what they're asking of us, that you just get used to never quite getting there never quite doing enough but it's it's wonderful to see the reaction of elders watching molly denali elders watching this cartoon or um people watching alaska daily and seeing gus bucks and uh jennifer younger's earrings and you know like all of these um we're gonna have some really cool stuff by rico world in my episode like you know just that's awesome speaking of jennifer younger did you you watch she hulk so you saw yes. the Hulk wearing her yes. design on the, I think, is it Ginu or Ginu? Yes. Their, so, their T-shirt. That was so cool. And knowing that, because the Hulk was CGI, that they had to CGI that design on was kind of awesome to think yeah. about, too. They had to spend a lot of time. Like, they couldn't just slap a T-shirt on him. Like, they really had to work at it. Yeah, that's really cool. You know, as we kind of wrap up, I want to talk about something real briefly that's nothing to do with all this, 
but you this last year at the first Alaskans uh, Smokehouse Gala were awarded the um, as a Young Alaska Leader or Young Native Leader Award. Young is the keyword. Yeah, yeah, I like that. I was like, wow, maybe I still qualify. I don't know. <laughs> um, one, I apologize for not being there because I unfortunately had a funeral, but I never I uh, recorded a piece. I don't know if that played or. I never saw that. I did catch your speech, though, and you moved me to tears. So what was that all like? Well, they did play your piece, and it made everyone laugh because I was like, oh, gosh. And you'd said um, something about how I know you're going to be embarrassed by us all talking about you right as I was, like, burying my head. You know, it was like, ah. <laughs> so that got a laugh about it from everyone. But, um, yeah, no, that was such a oh gosh I'm gonna get emotional just talking about it at at the time I was really in a place where I didn't even want to be doing what I was doing anymore because it was just oh yep I'm gonna get emotional but it was just too hard it was it was too lonely yeah and um it well, was, you made real sacrifices. I mean, your husband's in Anchorage, <laughs> yeah. moving to Juneau. You're in New York. Yeah, it was, and it was such an unplanned. Um, when they asked me to go to New York, it was. I had 72 hours from the time they met with me for the first time to the time I was on the plane to wow. go to New York, and we actually didn't know how long I was going to be there. I thought maybe six weeks. It ended up being four and a half months. So it was literally physically away from Joe most of the time, from the entire culture. Um, New York City is not a uh, in any way resembling Alaska at all, much less, you know, southeast. But um, it was, um, yeah, just not, I wasn't in a great place and feeling so constantly as if I was failing my culture and my people and the representation we were, we were trying to bring. And <laughs> um, I was feeling so lonely. And at the same time, I was constantly on the phone to you, to Liz Madison Crow, to Joe, of course, to um, my sister and my family, to um, constantly people who, whether it was asking them something you know, specific about the show, my dad and my uncle Howard are troopers and we we're constantly like asking them about, um, policing things in Alaska, you know, for the show, um, that it was such a realization that I was physically not, you know, around my land or, or people. Um, but man, were they with me? And right when, um, a pretty low point was when I got notice and, um, Liz and Valerie Davidson called me, joint called me. And I was like, Oh no. So Liz, so Liz, uh, is publisher of the magazine I edit. And so I was like, Oh gosh, here, we're, here we go. What are we going to, you know, like I was afraid she was like going to cancel the magazine or something. Cause, and she knew, she knew if she worded that way, she, she was going to get that reaction from me. But then they surprised me with this award announcement and, um, yes, yeah, such a, a point where I was feeling like such a failure to the culture and to the people to sort of get an award for representing them was, um, yeah, that's one of, one of the, um, 
greatest reminders at the best time possible. So yeah, that's I think that's that's pretty much the the speech. There's a short version of the speech I yeah. gave. I think. <laughs> well, it, it moved me to tears, and the the fact that you were feeling like you were letting anybody down kind of blows me away because your work is so representative of you and that, and you are Clinkett. Um, it's amazing, you know, watching your plays, you know, I've always absorb uh, First Laskins magazine and the stories. And I was really excited to see uh, the recent issue and it highlighted Scotty Jackson and his work on sea otters, which I could do several episodes on. <laughs> um, no, you are continually lifting us up. So I was glad to see you lifted up. And and I can relate. I, I Maybe I'll even share because this episode will probably come out in three to four weeks because uh, by then it'll be out. I was just went through a similar thing last year. I felt really low because a lot of people don't know this. Like I had a full academic scholarship at a, to Harvard and I didn't go because I got elected mayor and I got all these things. And um, I'm like 12 credits away from a degree. I don't have my degree and I'm the president of Lincoln Haida and I do all these things. And for the first time in my life, it had been used against me politically. And it hurt me in a way I'd never been hurt. Like, I don't usually care what other people think generally. But then you find out, oh, you really do. And I felt real. I was it, it brought me down for a few months. And then I got word that I'm getting an honorary uh, doctorate of law. And I was like, whoa, isn't that for elders or this or that or people who have done something? And they're like, um, you've done some things. And, it, you know, humble brag, but you, we work hard for what we're trying to accomplish. You do, I do. And I don't do it for the recognition, but sometimes that recognition comes when you really need it. So I was really proud of you. I was proud of you because you shared that too because we don't always share the struggles you know we don't tell people hey we're hurting right now and hey this is a sacrifice like everybody sees oh Vera's off in New York City and she's writing for this top TV show and and then to see it actually become high rated and all those things but you know it's a big sacrifice people don't understand to be separated from your spouse to be away from your support systems, that's a huge sacrifice. And again, I'm just gonna continually thank you because what you're doing matters. It's not just TV, it's not just this, it matters and it's lifting our people. And again, to see those comments on social media, like people rallying around, you know, it's tonight's episode, we're all watching and commenting and kind of the watch party. I was really bummed to miss the watch party too, by the way. Well, we're going to have another one when my episode comes out. So, <laughs> Well, hopefully I'm there. Cause when does it air? March 30th now. Oh, yes, I probably will be. I have to do like back. I'm going to be in D.C. for like two weeks, then to February. So my whole life was on hold. Well, they just pushed it back because um, it was going to be March 23rd, but they just pushed the second, like at this point, who knows? You know, it's going to be two years from now <laughs> before we see the show. But uh, yeah, they they just bumped it to March. That's the, probably the only complaint I hear about Alaskan Daily is it's a network show, and so many people are becoming these 
consumers of like Netflix where they put them all out at once. Well, even the um, so something act breaks. So this is this is something I really had to hone in for the show that I've never had to do before. So an act break is a commercial break. <laughs> and to have to write for commercial break, you're just it's just there's something as an artist. There's so much to do as a working artist where you just you're just paying bills, you know, um, and stuff you have to learn for just that specific format. You have to do that. That one was the biggest struggle as far as where you like are knowingly about to head it. You, you, this is the last thing they hear from the show until you go hear about, you know, bubblegum or you know, whatever. Right. So you kind of sort of have to learn these act breaks in there. So writing for a network show, commercials are obviously incredibly important. Um, and so I had to learn that format. So the network part of it is, has been really interesting because honestly, I consume more streaming than yeah. I do network TV, probably because of that. Cause you're sort of, I don't want to do the, the commercials. You know, I, that, like. I, I hate commercials so bad that on the streaming services that have advertising, I'll pay for the, like, Oh yeah, we do too. Yeah. So yeah, I yeah, don't yeah. have to. Well, and it's such a, you're sort of like oh, unwrapped in this story and then you go get sold a refrigerator. <laughs> back to yeah. so we we will um for sure the the watch parties are fun because we've been watching them and then you get the commercials and everything but ordinarily yeah we'd totally be watching it on like hulu with no commercials the next day which you can with this show if you want to yeah. watch it the next day with no commercials you can i don't think people want to wait till the next day <laughs> Well, Vera, thank you so much for joining us for another Opening the Box of Knowledge. And I think really lived up to the name of our show today. You dropped a lot of knowledge. And hopefully um, we'll do future episodes in the next one. I think we we need to do a, a husband-wife <laughs> episode with you and Joe. Because um, the only danger there is Joe and I tend to nerd out and go into these really long conversations about lightsabers and fighting with uh dueling and lightsabers and sword play and theater so i appreciate you not giving him a microphone today yeah. well I, this show had to be about you so that, that's good I, i've been waiting for him to start eyeing my lightsaber across the room and go open it but uh, if we notice we noticed the shirt choice today yeah the mandalorian yeah. that was a good choice he had he had another shirt choice that maybe he'll wear next time he was like which one I was like hmm mandolin got to do it yeah <clears throat> no so thank you so much for being with us uh and we'll catch up with kachung and find out where in the world is kachung <laughs> this week somewhere uh educating the world about uh his culture and so it's pretty exciting so thank you very much thank you.